Welcome to Kashrus on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine. And tonight's show, I'm guaranteeing you, will be worthwhile listening to the very end. There's so many things we're going to take, pl- we're going to take place here. It's a cutting edge, and I can tell you, you cannot find this information in print. On, on a radio station elsewhere. This is where it all happens, right here on Kashrus on the Air. So let me, without further ado, let me start with one uh, email that I got. It was, I, I believe it was somebody who was listening to this show. He didn't identify himself, although I, I saw the name. I, I am guessing that he was listening to the show. And maybe we had mentioned something about uh, how to treat, I think we, how we were discussing how to treat a, a mashkiach. And uh, he sent me an, a very strong letter, long email, about one of the problems that exists in not paying the mashkiach in a timely manner. And that really goes for every single worker. It's a very important thing. You know, the mashkiach, in many cases, uh, he has a family, and uh, the, 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 the actual job that he does doesn't pay a lot of money. There are very few benefits, usually nothing. And uh, it's a very diff- a difficult life that he's chosen for himself. And I've spoken to some really great mashkichim, and I mean great. Some of them won the awards and almost won the awards. It was really amazing, some of them. And and they discuss, you know, how difficult it is and how much they gave up to be a mashkich. And here this man comes home, and he doesn't have the money to give his wife. He doesn't have the money to pay the, his son's yeshiva. He doesn't have the money for uh, for food for Shabbos, and uh, and the, the Balabas says, "Oh, I'll take care of it Monday." Yep, but what about my Shabbos? What what about my family's Shabbos? How am I supposed to think and feel during the during those days? And in some cases, I've known Mashkichim not to get paid for months, and in the end, sometimes the cashless agency drops the the certification. Okay, I understand. But how did they let the mashkiach work and not get paid? How can they expect him to do a decent job if he works and doesn't get paid? And it makes him so dependent upon that employer. We're talking about that in recent weeks. So dependent on the employer. You would love to free him from that. He should be paid by the conscious organization or as in Petach Tifkin in his Eretz Israel, he should be paid by a, a manpower organization. Instead, he's relying on the Balabas, the owner of the establishment, to pay him. And and there he is, sometimes week after week, not getting paid, or just slowly catching up. Now you tell me the Rebbe has the same thing. It could be the Rebbe has the same thing. But the Rebbe doesn't have that, that conflict of interest he wants to educate the kids. He wants to get paid. It, it, you know, he doesn't. The uh, the the menial of the yeshiva is not going to try to sneak something past him. But that's what happens in Kashmir. So it's it's terrible. And he sent me this rabbi sent me a uh, a piece. I can't even read where it's from because it's not written on there about how to act towards a, a person to pay his his wage in a pro- timely manner. Of course, we know the halach, it's written in the Torah, but still in all, it's an important thing to think about. Just a, a little side. 
Now, this is hot off the press. I put it up on my website shortly before I came here. So you can see it if you're interested in seeing it on the website, which is kashrusmagazine.com, K-A-S-H-R-U-S magazine.com. Go there right now. You'll see this there. With the, We won't see a picture of the symbol because I... I haven't figured out how to do it on the on the, the way that I put things up there. I can't put up pictures. Well, we came across somebody was asking me who is the Rahashgacha behind this particular symbol. I don't know if you can see it on the the, the symbol is a the symbol is a, uh, a hexagon, six sided, and a K in the middle. Sounds like a real symbol, and on the side, right side, it says Kosher Parva. Jersey City. So I would think it was a Jersey City rabbinate or Jersey City something. And, you know, there is a Hasidish group in, now in, in Jersey City. Actually, two of them, we wrote it up in our magazine for the, for the travel guide, which is coming out in two weeks. Unbelievable travel guide. We have, I, I don't know the exact number, but we have over 360 cities now this year. I could be even closer to 370. I'm not sure we didn't add them up yet. But this, the Jersey City is growing in the Hasidic world, <laughs> and there's stuff there already. There's places to buy things. It's really very interesting. But in general, what's in Jersey City? There's a reform synagogue, and then there's this, uh, and this, and then there's this, uh, these Hasidic places. But you don't have rabbis floating around there. And we called up, find out who was the rabbi behind the symbol, and the, the company told me a name of a rabbi. And he even gave me the number. And I called. And the rabbi told me, What? I'm not giving Hashkacha to them. I haven't been there in two and a half years. Whenever they asked me to come and they wanted to keep up with some kind of thing, I, but I've moved away. I haven't been living in the city for years. I can't go back there. It's too far away. He lives many uh, states away. It would take him a half a day to get back there. And they never asked him to. And they tell people, that's him, that's the symbol. Are the owners, I asked him, uh, are the owners Jewish? He said, I'm not sure. <laughs> you got, we got somebody who is an owner making up a kosher symbol. They made it up themselves. He didn't even know the symbol existed. And they're going around telling everybody, it's him. So what did I do? I put it up on my website, and I reported it to the New Jersey Consumer Affairs Bureau, and let's see how it comes down. I hope they don't get upset with me, but what could I do? The name of the bakery, Honey Bakery, and the product that we have is Chak Chak, or C-H-A-K, C-H-A-K. Maybe it's Chak Chak, I don't know, but uh, if it's if it's Yiddish, we say Chak Chak. Uh, I really don't know what it means. And then in the bottom, we have some name here, which is Dopshni, which is some Russian uh, name that they put on the bottom. So, good luck to everybody. Stay away from Honey Bakery in Jersey City, New Jersey. And I don't believe that the Hashkocha, even that gentleman, is something that I would recommend to anybody. So, there's a, a new one on me. I haven't run across that for a long time with a, let's say, non-Jews making up a kosher symbol and claiming that a rabbi certifies them, and they think they're going to get away with it. What can I tell you? Now, this was an interesting one. This but came, it's, I know just, just yeah. it's really need us, us, the people, awareness and awareness, and check, you know, everything. It's because it's, yes. you cannot trust anymore. 
You have to. That's why you know we're going to have it in our magazine. It won't be anyplace else. It's going to be. It's a lead. One of the lead things in the in the magazine, and it's coming out in two weeks. Because you know you got to see the symbol, you got to hear the name, and then you know eventually, if 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 somebody gives it to you for a gift or something, you'll know what it's all about. Now here's one that that caught me a little bit off guard, and I don't know enough information to tell you more than what's written here. But it's a um, it's a, an, uh, an alert from the based in Sedek of the Eid HaCharedis in Yerushalayim. And basically it says, I'm not going to read the Hebrew, that we have a, they have a concern now on peaches that are in cans, canned peaches, even those with their hashkacha. Okay? What are they concerned? The concern is insects. It seems as an insect that was brought to their attention that there was that there's an insect that is in a lot of these cans of canned peaches, and what you have to do is you have to look briefly at each piece for one second, and you have to look in the liquid for one second, and then say you have to do anything more, and you want on on the uh, peach, look at the place where the pit had been, and if you find <clears throat> a beige colored uh, insect with a dark colored head that's him now the trouble is and you know it as well as I do that the peach has uh, a million little things <laughs> that where, where it surround that peach nice juicy parts of the peach surround that peach pit and uh, obviously some of them may be insects sort of like what you have when you open a fig we don't necessarily recommend figs anymore because the figs are infested and it's very hard to spot them because of their dark color but they're there and if you will do enough checking you'll see that they're they're there in serious serious number in almost every fig you got figs are the worst from all the things that i was been watching figs are the worst i it beats I, because broccoli is a problem you know and, you know what i mean lettuce is a problem and strawberries are a problem but we're talking about there's something else of a, a different nature. I found a figs to be a tremendous problem. Anyway, let's go. So, question. So, what do we do? Eat peaches. No one said not to eat peaches. But one second, you can look at the peach before you put it in your mouth. Now, some cans of peaches that we get here in this in this country don't have that little thing. Uh, we the little pieces that look like you know were surrounding the pit. They've cleaned that away. And it looks just a peach-colored piece, and you won't see anything at all like that because they've been very well cleaned, and you don't have them. So again, it may be an Israel thing. It may be European Israel. It may be stuff is here too. I don't know. That's why I'm telling you, look. But he said, but all they do is say, yes, live dok, shimush, al al hagarin, hamitz. That's all it says. And then it tells you what the color is. It's beige adam dam. That means beige. In rosh kehe, which means that it's a uh, dark colored head. And that's it. Okay, next case. So this is not kashrus, but it's a very interesting story. I don't really want to spend too much time on it, but it's really very interesting. What happened is there's a gentleman who I, I know very well, 
he is a Muslim Chavaz from Yeshiva Berkos Ruvain, and he lives in an area where he bought an apartment, co-opted it, you know, a co-op apartment, and in the co-op they decided to save some money. And how are they going to save money? They're going to, they have a dimmer on all the lights so that when you come out of your apartment, the lights get brighter. When you go into the apartment, then the lights go down. So they save money that way by not ha- putting so much light in the hall. Enough for people to walk by, but now you can make it bright as day when you come out of your apartment. And when you go into the apartment, it, go, it goes down, and it becomes like a duller color. And that's this way that's going to save a lot of money. The only problem is the people are going to be tripping this off every time they come in and go out. And it's, uh, it's is, it, is it any different, a dimmer, any different than turning the light on, turning it off, or the camera? So, you know, this is a topic for Rabbanim. So I want to just tell you what happened, and I'm reading a letter to you that the board from that uh, particular uh, from that particular uh, co-op sent him. Thank you for bringing your concerns about the new hallway lighting to the attention of the board of directors. As a, res- as a result, we spoke with several different members of the Orthodox community, ultimately reaching out to, and they mentioned an organization, a cashless organization. <laughs> That's what they did. About the dimming feature of the, on the lights and their potential conflict with the rules of the Sabbath. A cashless organization. Or, after multiple exchanges involving many well-thought-out questions and extended discussion, advisors at this cashless organization said it was their opinion that there would be a rabbinical exception, according to the Shevet Halevi, and he meant, they referenced two places in the Shevet Halevi, Rabbi Vosner, it, it should be clear, a clear heter in a case of an only voltage change. It doesn't go on and off, it just goes up and down. Based on this, the board has decided to return the lights to the settings of, of permanently on with dim wattage when the hallways are empty. This allows the new lights to do what they were meant to, conserve electricity and reduce the co-op's bill. Thank you for the opportunity to review, opportunity to review your concerns. In other words, thank you for sending us the question, and we've answered it. We went to our rabbis, whoever they are, unnamed, <laughs> to represent the orthodox point of view, unnamed, right? And they agreed with us. Hmm, very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Uh, who are these rabbis? What? Nothing. So uh, this young man was a Talmud from the yeshiva, so he said, let me go to the rabbis. And he went to like five rabbis in the community, and all of them told him it's 100% usher, and they have no right to do this. And they gave him a letter. One, the, the main rabbi there gave him a letter, and he presented the letter now to the board, and I don't know the answer. If I find out the answer, I'll try to remember to tell everybody here. But the point is that the that the board had had gone to their rabbis, whoever they are unnamed, to get the orthodox opinion, meaning that members of the board are probably not orthodox, but they know that there is such a question, and they wanted to have some backing, and somebody said to their understanding that this would be a, a clear heter in, in this particular case that they had of only a voltage change. 
Now, did Rav, did did the, the Shevet Halevi talk about voltage change, or was it inferred from there? And is he the only opinion? I spent some time. I'm not going to do it now. Maybe another time we'll take it up. It's very, very interesting. I went to a few different um, articles that I was able to get and discuss this and go back all the way to the different Rabbanim, old Rabbanim, through the whole Shiloh and show exactly what's what's involved and which each person held. It's it's really... Uh, Amazing, and what, what's going? What Somet says in Israel, and every name, you know, everybody named they named over here. Not somebody inferred from a chuba <laughs> in, in, in order to save the money of this co-op. So this gentleman returned, and he said that you know he wants him to look at it again. So the question came up: Should he say something that would be challenging to them? Should he say, in effect, that? We're going to take this further if you don't say yes, you don't change this. And it was decided they're not going to challenge the board like that. If there's enough time, we'll discuss it some other time. But if it if it comes up, then, you know, whatever. But right now, they're just going amicably to discuss it with the board. But this is the wave of the future. The wave of the future is many people living in different apartments, if you live in Borough Park or certain areas of Flatbush or some other area like Lakewood, Jackson, Tom River, wherever you're living, if you're living in certain areas where it's solidly Jewish and from, maybe this won't happen to you. But I can see this happening more and more, and I see us being plagued with these people setting up the different things that they want, whether it's the camera, whether it's the lights that go on, or the dimmer or something else, they're putting it in our face. Is it mutter because it's a psikresha, the lonichale? Okay, so in the case of the, of the lights going on, I'm sorry, in the case of the camera going on and taking the pictures, so Rav David Feinstein told me that it's a, a, a it's a psikresha, the lonichale, and I'll peep din, it's mutter to go in front of it. I discussed with Gadolim and with a big rabbanim in Israel. And who had worked with the Gedolim, who worked with Holy Yashiv, and they told me that in America, where you don't have no benefit from it yourself, not a problem, the owner of the building has a problem. So here you have a d- distinct problem, because the, in a sense, this young man who I'm talking about is also a beneficiary, because the co-op is saving money. They're going to charge him less money. So really, doesn't he win too? Good question. I'm not going to be able to answer that question. But it's so slight, and he's fighting it, so I'm sure you can call it lo nichale. Interesting questions that we're all going to face in the future. This leads me to a, a very interesting article. I heard about this, and I was so interested. Maybe it's not exciting to you, but to me, it was very exciting. The topic, cornflake reform. What does it mean, cornflake reform? In Israel, there are people who are very poor. With whatever government help they have, some people are very poor. I'm not talking now, it could be the B'nai Torah too, but still in all, the people who are very poor. And the, and the, in Israel, unlike America, there's a, a society 
that controls and works with the different companies that create businesses. And if there's a problem, a social problem, that people don't have money, instead of collecting money and giving to the poverty organizations, they want to resolve it that there shouldn't be poverty. So how do you do that? You reduce the price of the food. Now, how can you reduce the price of the food? It costs what it costs. Well, here's the trick. Let's say I'm the importer of a certain breakfast cereal. Cornflakes, let's say Kellogg's cornflakes, coming from England with the Manchester-based in Hashkocha, which is what happens. That's what I think it is. I think the Kellogg's company from there has, a, has the Manchester-based in Hashkocha. If I'm wrong, so be Michael me. But I remember seeing that many, many years ago. So if you if the if the importer of that particular product sets a price of ten shekels for the product, then that's all it's going to go for. And some real cheap stores will get it for nine and a half. Will sell it to you for nine and a half shekels or nine shekels, but they can't go much below it because he's setting the prices in the country, and he really controls all the action. What happens, however? If somebody else can import that particular product, which everybody loves, the Kellogg's cornflakes with the Manchester based in Hoshkocha from England, if somebody can else can else can import that product, then there's checks and balances, there's competition, and then he's then one of those two is going to sell it for eight dollars, or the new price, you know, or wherever it is, you're going to there's going to find a range somewhere lower, and that's what we call competition. Right now, there's not so much competition because of one factor, the Rabbanut. Because the Rabbanut has been working on certifying the importing of foods. So let's say that company now, that Manchester based in cornflakes from Kellogg's, they need to have the issuer of the Rabbanut in order to sell. A lot of, if they don't have the issuer of the Rabbanut, their sales are down in the, the dumps. So they get the issue of the Rabbanut. It costs them a little guilt. The Rabbanut comes, checks it out, certifies it. The Mitzvah goes and checks it. Everything set up, and now you can import that product. But what happens in Israel is something, I don't know if we have anything like that in America. I don't think we do, because we have built-in competition. But listen to what it says. It says that the, there's an official importer. I don't know how you get to be official importer, but, but each product could have an official importer. So right now, it seems that they're very limited in terms of who the importers are. If they open it up to more importers for the same product, and the Rabbanut will cooperate to give Hashkoch and Yishur HaRabbanut on, the, on both of them, because they are the same, then the situation could change. I remember reading in the material that I get from the Rabbanut, and I put in my magazine a lot of the material that they send me, uh, because I have the I have the only section in the world dealing with Consumer Alert Israel. I have two pages running every issue, sometimes three, sometimes one, but usually two pages every issue on problems, that, uh, on, uh, on kosher food problems in Israel, and with very specific names and hotels and in old age homes and the caterers and everything, the real the real stuff on everybody, much more in some in some cases because the Rabbanut supplies me with the information. Anyway, at when the the, the Rabbanut sometimes will get down on somebody who did not have authorization 
to import the product. So there'll be the official importer. He was allowed to import it. He was allowed to have, he was given the issuer. But then another person is selling the, quote, exact same product, supposedly, right? I mean, we can't guarantee unless you're giving the issuer, right? Unless you go there and check it out. And I mean, we, don't, we can't be sure. And we don't control that importer. But the import, another importer says, I'm, I'm getting the same product in. But then the Rabbanut goes down and attacks him and says, he doesn't have Yishur. It's not legit. Sometimes it's put on by mistake. He didn't have permission. And then they're going to lose a lot of business. The way to make the competition is to have the Rabbanut allow multiple importers certifying this, bringing in the same product. And that's basically what they're going to do. In America, we do have competition. But I started to think when I read this article, and I, I was thinking very hard about it, and I said, it's very interesting. If you will go and you will see what we're paying for some of our products. Now, again, some of the products that we buy, I'm not going to figure it out now myself. If you can do it your own homework. But some of the kinds of products that we buy, the kosher brand, the Glot Kosher brand, the Super Glot Kosher brand is within sense of the national that are not kosher. You know, it's within a sense of it, not a lot, not a lot of money difference. And understandably, it's kosher, you got to have ashkacha, it's Glot Kosher, I have five ashkachas, it's sold by from distributors and from store owners, they got to make panos and send the kids to good yeshivas, and if you haven't checked it out, the summer camps are a fortune. Even the even the in the camps in town without going away for the summer, just right here in New York, the the, the camps are in the th- in a nice couple of thousands per kid. It's a nice little bit of money that's spent in camp every summer just to survive here in the hot city. So it it's it, it, so that's the owners of these companies want to get send their kids to camps also. They were in a bungalow colony, or they, they want to get away, a vacation here and there. So it costs money. So I understand there's going to be a few cents difference, maybe even a nice few cents. But then there are some products which are double, triple of what the, the, what the Goyim are paying. And that's a question. That question has to be answered. Now, we, don't, we already have competition. Because anybody could sell anything to anybody. They get a hashgacha, and you can even get the same hashgacha. The OU gives a certification to competing products. The OK does. The Sachdas Rabbonim does. The, the Nirbat Rov does. Everybody that gives hashgacha to competing products. So there is no problem here in America that way. The problem is we don't have a society. <laughs> in Israel, they're ready to kill for this. In America... I gotta spend so much, and we just accept it blindly and go on, and we don't create the the strength to stem the tide. In Israel, they're fighting the tide. In America, we're going like lambs to the slaughter. That's my feeling. You have your own opinion. Kolakavod. Leads me to another issue, which I mentioned briefly. I just want to mention it briefly again. The Union of Orthodox Synagogues of South Africa, UOS, they had a scandal in South Africa. It's called Stan and Pete. Stan and Pete 
they discovered in Stan and Pete 13 Trefa chickens. And they're trying to find out what's the story with those Trefa chickens. Were they used for kosher meals? Was it going on for a long time? Did the owners know? So the, 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 the country went ballistic when this happened. And they told the, o, the UOS, you better come to the bottom of this, of this story. And there was pressure put on them. But they reacted in a way that was extraordinary, unprecedented. What did they do? They, they went ahead and hired a law firm. You'll ask me why a law firm. I'll tell you why a law firm. They hired a law firm, and that law firm has forensic capabilities, which means that they'll study the, the, the physical aspects of it in their own labs, with their own research, not relying on an outside lab. And why a lawyer? Because if, God forbid, they find that this person did this intentionally, He's claiming he didn't. But if the owner owners did it intentionally, they may have to decide to prosecute and maybe criminal charges will be arranged. I don't know if you wouldn't know about it, but in Canada last year, there was a conviction of a company that was selling cheese to two kosher camps. One of them a from kosher camp. The other one a moderate, just kosher camp. And they were selling them trefa cheese, non-kosher cheese. They faked them out completely. But the COR caught it, and the COR presented it to the government, and they sued these people, and they, uh, I think it may have been criminal charges also. I don't remember the details. You could check up your, you know, the story. But they, they convicted the other side. They, they, they found them guilty of doing it intentionally. And that's what you have to do. So in down there in, the, in South Africa, they decided that if it's going to be something, we want lawyers, we want the lawyers to know all the details, and we'll pay once for that, because if we need them as lawyers, we're not going to have to pay twice. We have that information, and they know it. So they decided to go with these lawyers, a Jewish fellow, not necessarily religious, is involved with that, with that set of lawyers, and it, it made a big Impression, because this is a famous law firm in South Africa. And then they went to the AKO, the Association of Conscious Organizations, and they hired, they asked the ACO to send three representatives to spend a week there, which they're doing this week. Right now, these three individuals are there from ACO, the Association of Conscious Organizations. It's a worldwide organization. Based here, uh, the, the the head of it is Rabbi Fishbane from Chicago, and they have meetings. Just got a, uh, an announcement of uh, of one of their meetings coming up now in a few a few weeks, and uh, they they try as much as possible to make tikkunim changes in the system, and they also try to uh, to create a standard. And they have communication between each other, and it has done a lot to elevate the standards of Kashrus over these last 25 years. Now, this, the, they asked for three people to come. So who do you think they got? 
Who do you think they got? Well, I'll tell you who they got. Rabbi Menachem Ganak, CEO of the OU. He's going there. He's there. Rabbi Moshe Elephant, the COO of the OU. And Rabbi Fishbane, who's the head of the CRC in Chicago and the head of the ACO organization. And these are the three people, top flight people, and that's who they invited, who's sitting there right now, not sitting, walking around or driving to all the different hashkachas that they have, and to see a sampling from every group, but to make recommendations. That was amazing. Not only that, they already put somebody in charge of the Kashrus organization. A new person was put in there. Somebody who's very good, who's very close to the chief rabbi. And then they contacted me. The reason they contacted me is because I wrote them an email telling them how wonderful this whole thing was, how important it was, and how much we stand behind the work that they're doing, and we wish that the organizations in the United States and the rest of the world would take a lesson from them and would take it seriously when a problem comes up and try to resolve it not just for the for the day, not just to you know go on with life, but to set things up in a way that will be in control for the future, and to do it with uh, in a way that's transparent, that people know about it, like the emails that I'm getting. And here it's not. I haven't seen this, so I wrote them that little email. It was a shorty, about this big, you know, about ten lines, and they said could you please send us a letter, a full letter, saying what you said over there? We want our people to see it here. We want the people in South Africa to see how important it is to the rest of the world what we just did. And no, uh, that was Friday. So I sent it over right away. Sent them a, knocked off a, a letter. It didn't take very long. It's all in my head. And Baruch Hashem, they have it. And this week, it will appear in the South African papers because they are serious. But then they told me something else. And this I'm telling you now, nobody knows. Now, I know, I have a connection with uh, Rabbi Warren Goldstein, who's the, who's the chief rabbi of South Africa. I've been communicating with him about something else. And we're trying to work towards improving a situation and he put some people in charge of it. It's a whole story. I'm not not for today. So this gentleman who was communicating with me, who, who took over the, became the head of the cautious uh, department over there, uh, whose name is also Goldstein, Dovi Goldstein, not related <laughs> to Rabbi Warren Goldstein, but Rabbi Dovi Goldstein told me that he's very close to the chief rabbi and that's what and he and the chief rabbi told him ask rabbi wickler to write a letter and the chief rabbi he told me is somebody who lives in order to reach everybody in the country and whoever else he can reach he's on a rampage to try to save jewish people beautiful it's not an accident that they're doing this Rabbi Goldstein has a vision. Someday, I'm going to read the article from Modia or Yated or whatever it is. I'm going to read the articles about Rabbi Goldstein. But 
through the few experiences that I've had with him, I'm living it with him. And I see what that man is all about. Very, 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 very impressive. I thought you might enjoy that. And the next topic for me, <laughs> the next topic is, is the insects from Rabbi Belsky. I'm reading from the April Dafakashras from the OU. What I'm telling you now was already up on the OU website. It was there probably forever, but it was printed here in the Dafakashras. I'm not going to read all of it, but some of it is so interesting, and even though I've probably seen it before, I was still thunderstruck. Rabbi Bistrisser, how will you pronounce it? B-I-S-T-R-T-R-I-C-E-R. Wonderful gentleman at the OU. Brother Bistrisser, he uh, wrote he wrote this article, which is really a summary of Reb Chaim Yisrael Belsky Zatzal's Psokim regarding checking for insects. So I we have a limited amount of time. I don't want to spend too much on it, but a few points I think are really worth hearing. Number one, he mentions here what is considered a unit. In other words, we're saying. 10%, if something has 10% of the time it has insects, then you have a problem with it. And you have to check it. You have to make sure it's clean. But 10% of what? So you have to have a unit, right? So he said like this. Assessing what is considered common or uncommon depends upon the circumstances of each situation. This depends upon the chances of finding insects in a unit of measure that is reasonable for each specific case. So a unit may be, maybe it's a big thing. Some places there may be a little thing. So let's see what it is. The unit can be individual fruits or vegetables, an apple, a pear, a bin, okay. Or can be depend on how the product is sold, e.g. individual containers, provided that it's sensible for the particular situation. In other words, I'm sending you a gigantic supply of something well, that doesn't is not like no, that's not anything to do nothing to do but an individual. <laughs> Everything's your king size packages is not going to be is not really what we're talking about. You have to be a, a normal kind of a unit. Maybe it's for one use for the meal for the family. Maybe it's for one person. Maybe it's slightly more than that, but it can't be a huge amount. Okay, and then he goes on to tell us. In the restaurants, he allows a chazaka. When inspecting large quantities at a restaurant, it's permissible to rely on sampling for a chazaka check. But he's not suggesting it for the person in the house. When inspecting very large quantities of factory, it's also permissible to rely on statistical sampling in lieu of chazaka check. You and your house do not know what a chazaka check is. You don't know how much creates a chazaka, a sort of a guarantee or a probability that this is correct. You don't know what it would be done in a, re- in a, in a setting, uh, in an industrial setting. You can't imagine how much it is. You might say it should be 10 times as much as they actually take. Or you might think it's even less than they take, and they're taking too much. So you don't know yourself. This is something that scientists and rabbonim sit around talking about. And our checking ability is very limited anyway. We're not as good as the as the inspectors, so they they can use a smaller amount for a sampling than you should be doing. 
And so therefore, don't jump into the sampling, but understand that if you hear, for example, uh, that, that they're sampling it at the store or the restaurant, whatever it is, well, that's with the Rabbanim's Hashkacha. It may be good enough. Now, here's an interesting thing. There are new, different, and innovative methods to check fruits and vegetables. Well, the most famous one is the Shmata Bedik, which they're using, a lot of people are using now. Where they take and they uh, run it through water uh, they, you know, and capture the water and then check the water with, by putting the water through a, a netting. And that netting is very, very, very tight. Nothing, is, nothing small is going to get through there. And they check the netting afterwards. That's the, uh, the method that many people are using. It's called Shmata Bedika. Uh, some people call it something a little different, but that's how the thing we started, and that's I'm still saying it that way, although I know a lot of people are using other names right now. And that that method is t- it taking over in many, many places. The OU is using it pretty much exclusively. But this is something very interesting, and I like this. There are new, different, and innovative methods to check fruits and vegetables. Any method that is proven to be effective is acceptable. Someone, someone more. Co- uh, there's something wrong with the English here. Someone more comfortable and experienced with checking according to the traditional method on the leaf may continue to do so. So he's saying that if you like checking each piece on the leaf, meaning uh, with a, uh, a visual inspection held up to the light. Or uh, I mean, this, the sun, or or on a light box. If you want that visual inspection like that, continue to do it. If it works for you, it's good. It's fine. You don't have to switch over to the Shemata Badika. And I know there's one organization in this area, not far away, and they looked into the the Shemata Badika method and said, no, that's not for us. We're going to stick with the leaf method. And I wrote in my magazine. I had a I sent a questionnaire out to one thousand. Uh, 300 and whatever it was, 70 organizations at that time, maybe a little less. And I, I asked them, what do you do? And it's amazing. We printed it. Some people said, we do the Shemata Badika. Some people said, what's that? Some people said, we're doing every leaf. Some people made a Chazaka. Every Kashmir's organization did differently. And based upon their experience, some of them, Taka, were not aware about all the or the opportunities, and that's a, that's unfortunate. And I think that my letter made <laughs> them aware of it. But whatever, you know, it's a struggle. Everyone struggles with the same problem. So if you this works a little better for you, do that. The other one works better, maybe you could do that. That was what Rabbi uh, Belsky said. Next. Uh, one is not obligated to check fruits and vegetables with magnification. Minuscule insects that can't possibly be identified at all without using magnification are permitted. We never argued that. The point is that sometimes you have situations where you see a dot. This dot is a little funny. Fuzzy at the ends. Why is a dot, which is just a piece of something, fuzzy at the ends? Especially here and especially there. Because those are legs. That's a head. This is a, you know, these are legs coming out. Now, you don't, oh, those are legs. Let me see it again. Now I see it. So a lot of times people don't know what looking at. So, of course, you may look like a dot to you. 
And that's why you use the, the loop. You use it to help you understand what you're seeing. But if you don't see it as a, an insect, you're sitting there for, now that I see it as an insect, I still can't see anything here. It doesn't look anything. I don't know what in the world. I couldn't have find it. couldn't figure that out. Okay, so maybe it's not an insect according to Halacha. Now that you know it's there, can you eat it? That's the next one. I love this next one. Someone that has especially keen eyesight must certainly avoid insects that he can see, but others cannot. So if you got the best eyes in the class, if you're the one that the, the eye doctor said, you don't need nothing. <laughs> if you're the one that always can spot things a mile away and you see the bug, you can't eat it. Who said that? Rabbi Belsky. But, but the other people can't see it. Rabbi Belsky, the one that's doing a, giving you the coolest that the old relies upon, said to you, if you see it, you can't eat it. However, this does not automatically mean that, that those insects are forbidden for others. Wow. It could be, I could eat it and he can't. That's what the man said. Now, again, I, he said he could not necessarily, definitely, you have to speak to a rub. But that's a very interesting piece. You never heard that one before. And I had not heard it before I looked at it. <laughs> that's one of the interesting thing that came here uh, on the, in the April issue of Dafakashus. I thought it was exciting. Rabbi Bistris's uh, article on a summary of Rabbi Chaim Yisrael Belsky's Ratzal's Psokim regarding the checking for insects. And now... It's ancient history time. This is really something, but it ties into modern times. I mentioned it here a few weeks ago, and I don't know, I, I'm surprised people didn't come up to me in, in the street and, 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 and ask me a thousand questions about it. Rabbi Herschel Schachter wrote in the Jewish press in the middle of, uh, in, in the middle of, uh, of, of, of April, he wrote a amazing piece in which he challenged Rabbi Moshe Tendler, who told us that swordfish is not kosher. When did Rabbi Tendler say that? 60 or 70 years ago. And in that all that time, I never heard a word of this. And I think it's one of the most interesting things that I've seen. And it does boggle the mind, and of course it does need a little more clarification, which I cannot do here. But this is what um, Rabbi Schachter said in the OU, I'm sorry, from the OU, Rabbi Herschel Schachter, who was at the OU and at YU, it's considered a posek in the modern Orthodox world. He's uh, one of the leading people in the, in the Yeshiva University, and he is a halachic advisor of the OU. Rabbi Belsky Zatzal and Rabbi Herschel Schachtel have been working at the OU for years, and both of them were equally the uh, halachic advisors of the OU. But the OU doesn't go according to any either one of them. The OU makes its own halachic decisions. It's just that they want input from leading poiskim and rabbanim and they hired these two people to, to, to work on these different questions that come up at the OU and give the input. The final decision is always in the hands of Rabbi Menachem Ganak, who is the CEO of the OU. 
Yogi Kashrus. So in the Chaz, in the Shulchan Aruch, the commentaries bring down that Dag Hechorev, Hechorev, I'm sorry, the Dag Hechorev, which means the fish of the sword, is kosher. Now, what does that mean? The fish of the sword is that swordfish? Swordfish. Sword so, what? Swordfish. Sword yeah. Well, that's that. That's the point. So, so why are we saying that um, it's not necessarily kosher? So, this is what Rabbi Shachter said. Because around sixty to seventy years ago, they asked Rabbi Moshe Tendler if he could make a list of which fish are kosher and which aren't. Rabbi Tendler decided to list swordfish as a trefer fish because he called up an expert who told him that scales on a swordfish are, have a different consistency than those of other fish. So he decided it's not a kosher fish. Now Rabbi Shachter argues with that based on something that came out 20 years ago, which I never heard of, and you probably never heard of either. There's a professor, Shlomo Sternberg, and Rabbi Shachter says he's a genius in learning and in math. And he published an essay 20 years ago, in which he says that Rabbi Yosef Be'er Salavechik from YU asked him to do research on swordfish. He showed Rabbi Salavechik the scales of the swordfish, and Rabbi Salavechik said, it's a kosher of fish. So uh, he, he has these scales still around. <laughs> if you want to get them, I don't know why you need them. You can get your candle of a swordfish now too. But he still has those scales that he keeps in a special envelope, this rabbi, uh, this, this professor, Professor Shlomo Sternberg. Anyway, Rabbi Tenle claims that Dag HaCherev is a different fish. And that's the question whether Dag HaCherev is a swordfish. So Rabbi Tenler had his opinion, and the entire Orthodox world with, with Rabbi Tenler, and Rabbi Moshe Feinstein also, everyone went with Rabbi Tenler, and now, uh, 60, 70 years later, Rabbi Shacht is bringing into question whether we were overly machmir. Now, I've got to share with you some of this next few minutes. In eight minutes, I, I could do some of it. It's unbelievable. There was a, there's a, there's a famous, there was a rabbi Pardes. He put out a publication that came out regularly, Ha Pardes. And I'm looking for, on volume seven, I'm sorry, number seven, volume one, April 1933. It's a real humdinger. If you ever have a chance to read it, it's so simple to get. You get it on hebrewbooks.org. And if you want to know, I'm giving it to you again. Volume 1, number 7, April 1933, Hapardes, Chelek Zion, Choveris Aleph. That's the same thing, That's the, you know, which I just told you in English. Page 15. A list of kosher fish. And this list of kosher fish is not just a list of kosher fish. Let me read the few words before it. Rishimas midagim tohorim umutarim lo'ochlan. These are kosher fish that you could eat. Harbei tarachnu bazeh. We worked very hard on this. Limtsowu lefaseimus adagim asher yesh bahem simonei tahayra mafurish batorah besnapia vekaskeses. We had a search to find out which ones have proper fins and scales. Umutarim lo'ochlan, and you could eat them. Vasinu chakiru drisha. Washington. We went and studied the records in Washington, New York, etc. 
He looked everywhere. Detailed information about these fish. And all of these, it gives the English name and the scientific name. I probably can't read the scientific name because it's all Latin and it's hard to me to do. But whatever it is, you know, these fish are bona fide, 100% Kodesh. Who signs this? In the part is, who signed this? Who put this together? Agudas Harabanim Sabris for Canada. That was the Agudas Harabanim. But Moshe Feinstein later on, not this time, was the head of the Agudas Harabanim. The greatest rabbis of America were the head of Agudas Harabanim. That was the most right-wing, responsible, from group that you could possibly get in America. And here's the list. And I'm just circled a few words. Now, one or two of these that I mentioned might be definitely kosher, but some of the other ones we definitely don't eat anymore. Okay? Buffalo fish. I'm not even sure what that is. Croaker. I don't know if that's kosher or not, but listen to this. Eel. Freshwater eel. He said, an eel is kosher. Gudas Harabonim, 1933. Kingfish, two types of kingfish. A big fight going on in uh, South Africa, I think it was, or was it in, or was it another place? You'll have to enlighten me again. Maybe it wasn't South Africa. Maybe it was somewhere else. But uh, down one of those countries, there is a major fight over king over over kingfish if it's kosher or not today. There are those, these and those. Some say yes, some say no. But 1933 on the list from the Agudas uh, Sarabanda was listed. Ready for the next one? Sturgeon. Two types of sturgeon. Swordfish. All these were on the recommended list in 1933. So I don't know the truth. I know that the people who don't eat the swordfish say it's because of two things. One is that the, the baby swordfish have scales, but the scales are rough, and they can't come off by just rubbing it with a lightly with a knife, the way you take scales off a fish. You have to go ahead and like scrape it, and it rips the skin. And the question is whether those are real scales. The second part of the question is the fish loses its scales. By the time it's an adult, it loses scales. And now you've never seen swordfish, but I studied it. Swordfish can be as little as two inches, and it can go up to be, I don't know, 16 feet. Gigantic. Swordfish can be absolutely gigantic because they got a sword in the front. They got oh, it's unbelievably long. When it gets about four feet, which means it's an adult, but it's not the biggest size, no scales. So, here we have your machlokas l'shem shemayim. I'm not going to put my head in it. Let the rabbis talk about it. If we'll see an article that's really uh, interesting, I'll try to bring it to your attention. Meanwhile, don't go for swordfish and, and don't go for sturgeon because the Orthodox people haven't eaten it in many, many years. But what's interesting is they did eat it. At least some of them ate it for many, many years. So, so that, what's kosher today is not kosher tomorrow. I have a great piece here in the party, so I'll have to save it for next week. There's not enough time, and I don't want to kill it. 
It's an unbelievable piece. I hope Lee Netter will mention it next week. Unbelievable. An about face in Kashrus in 1933 that you'll never, ever forget. So make sure up next week, and I'm bleeding that there, I'll be able to give it to you. Hopefully I'll find the papers and be able to bring them again. If you're interested in any issue about Kashrus, you can contest at contact Kashrus Magazine at 718-336-8544. 718-336-8544 or Kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S at AOL.com. Also, you can go to our website, kashrusmagazine.com if you want to subscribe or you want to find out more about what it's all about. A number of our articles are, are mentioned there. You can say, read this, and you can push the button, and you'll see about three articles from every issue. We don't put everything up there, but we do put enough up to make it interesting. If they need to learn a lot about kashrus, no charge. And if you want to subscribe, that's your choice. But uh, the next issue of the Kashrus Magazine is coming out in about two weeks. It will be of the Kosher Travel Guide to over 360 cities across the United States of America. And we added a whole new bunch of them. I, I, I spent a lot of time working on some of these cities and learning so much about them. It's absolutely mind-boggling how much Yiddishkeit there is in this country. And we're not going to discover all of it, but piece by piece we get a tremendous amount of information in, you know the magazine is over a hundred over 144 pages and we may have to go to a larger size this year because it just looks huge what we're dealing with we won't know until we completely lay it out and so if you're interested in the in the kosher travel guide or the magazine or the kosher supervision guide or anything about kashras call us at 718-336-8544 or you can e- email us at kashras K-A-S-H-R-U-S at AOL.com. And until next week, this is your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine for Kashrus on the Air.